Matthew 26. We do communion at the end uh, this morning. And what we will um, study is what I was going to preach on Easter. And if Christ is our King, every Sunday is a reminder of Easter. This is why we worship on Sunday. This is why the church gathers every Sunday instead of Saturday is because of the resurrection of our Savior. And if Christ is our King, we don't just come once a year and uh, punch our, uh, check it off our to-do list, went to church, did that for the year, oh, maybe Christmas will go then. If Christ is our King, we can't wait to get here every Sunday. Christ, as we heard uh, two weeks ago, is uh, the perfect king in the book of Matthew. And I gave Pastor Ty my notes uh, 40 minutes before, and I was in agony here, and I went home. I went to urgent care and then went home, and I was writhing on my couch in pain, and that was much better than writhing up here in pain. And so uh, thank you uh, for... Um, Treating Pastor Ty so well. Thank you, Pastor Ty, for stepping in, pinch hitting, and did a great job. I am so thankful to be uh, your pastor and to watch uh, an Easter service where many of you, uh, I could hear you singing on these microphones that pick you up, and then the, um, the choir that I got to see. And I know what happens before and after services now, that you get to talk to uh, a lot of people, and I'm sure that happened on Easter, and those who didn't know Christ uh, were greeted and were treated with uh, love and uh, enjoyed a time of um, fellowship together. If I were to give you a question, do you like Christmas or Easter better? Christmas and Easter aren't really Christian terms. They're um, not really in the Bible. But if, uh, as a kid, you asked me that question, it would have been no contest. It would have been Christmas. And when it comes to Christmas and Easter decorations, which one wins? When it comes to Christmas and Easter, how much time we think about or how much money we spend on gifts, it's no contest. But when it comes to how much text of Scripture is included in our Bibles for the day of Christ's birth or the day of his death, which has more text of Scripture. The day, the 24 hours around Christ's birth, there are 16 verses in our Bible. Half of a verse in Matthew and 15 verses in Luke. And that's it. Nothing in Mark, nothing in John. Do you know how many verses there are from the Garden of Gethsemane till Christ is put in the tomb, the garden tomb, between the two gardens? Do you know how much text of Scripture we have for the day of his death? 359 verses. Divide that by four. That's 90 verses average in each of the Gospels. Which of the day of his birth, day of his death, do you think God wants us to pay more attention to? It is clearly not his birth. It is clearly, it's not even close, it's his death. 
and we look at church history and look at the book of Acts and look at the rest of the New Testament, how much of the New Testament talks about the day of his birth or the day of his death? I don't know of anywhere in the New Testament, Acts and beyond, that talks about his birth. It almost just assumes that Jesus had to come. But everything in the New Testament talks about his death and his resurrection. You know how many verses there are about the day of his resurrection? 95. It's not even close to the day of his birth either. So the day of his death and the day of his resurrection, so much text of scripture, and yet we probably have Luke 2 birth memorized, where the angels come and say, glory to God in the highest, on an earth peace, goodwill toward men. And as a kid, I probably memorized that. And we know that story, and we love to hear that story, but the Easter story is of so much more significance. He had to come, but he had to come for the reason he had to die. And our children, our grandchildren, if we want to be biblical in how we emphasize what we emphasize, I would emphasize a whole month of Easter and one day of Christmas. Instead of five weeks of Christmas, shopping, gifts, decorations, parties, all that goes into our Christmas celebration, and there's just 16 verses. It's pretty much just Luke, too. When it comes to how we look at the resurrection of our Savior, massive amounts of Scripture. So we need to be reading the crucifixion story. We need to be reading the trial story. We need to be reading the resurrection story. If our kids are ignorant of his birth, that's one thing, but they're, if they're ignorant of his death and resurrection, that's a whole other issue. And we should not have our children grow up in our homes and say we love the Bible and we love Christ and them not to know the details. So my plan was for the next four years to go through whatever God says to us in each of the arrest to the resurrection passages. We'll start with Matthew this year, next Easter, Lord willing, uh, unless I pass that off to Pastor Ty. Um, it will be Mark, then Luke, then John. And so what we're going to do uh, today is to look at all of the responses of people around Christ. And we're going to divide each of these main points, the king on trial, the king crucified or laying down his life, and the king resurrected. Look at clearly in our text what the text tells us about those who Jesus is king and those who don't want Jesus to be king. Okay, and so the rest of all the world right now is divided in that Jesus is king or Jesus is not king. And how we look at God's word, how we look at Jesus being the perfect king, we are anticipating people around Jesus that love him, that want him to be king, to be very different than people that don't want him to be king, and he's not their king. It's just like that today in the world. When we talk to people, there are people that were here on Easter that we won't see again until Christmas. Why? 
because Jesus isn't their king. But those who say, Jesus is my king, they will live differently. They will worship differently. They will love differently. And they will obey God and serve God differently. Why? Because we look at the, crucif- the trial, crucifixion, resurrection so much differently than the world because Jesus is my king. And there might be some here today and some watching that Jesus is not your king. And you'll see yourself in this story that you are a lot like the people in the narrative here that Jesus is not your king. This story has it all. Drama, fighting, courtrooms, torture, suicide, criminals, rulers, earthquakes, and resurrections. Everything that we'll read about today. The focal point is a person, the perfect person, the perfect king. He's my king. He's many of your kings. I trust if he's not your king, he will be your king today. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 989. We'll follow uh, Matthew 26. We'll try to read. I know uh, you read it uh, two weeks ago. This story never gets old, and you can't read it too much. So we're going to read it again. Verse 47 of Matthew 26, while he was speaking, that's Jesus telling his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, my betrayer is at hand, and they're coming to arrest me. This was a large crowd of at least 600 soldiers with some of the chief priests and their servants, so a large crowd. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him was a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then came up, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back. We know from another gospel, this is Peter. Put your sword back in its place for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. 12 legions, 72,000 soldiers. In the Old Testament, an angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. You know how many angel, you know how many people 72,000 angels could kill in one night? 13 billion people. That's more than the population of the earth right now. Jesus doesn't need Peter and his little sword. Verse 50 Three, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But, now, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but at all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. 
And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. And though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? We'll stop there. Is he your king on trial? Many, most, which we expect. When Christ is on earth, most people around him, he was not their king. They wanted food. They wanted healing. They wanted a little bit of teaching here and there. But they would never say, he is my king. Especially when he's standing on trial. No way. Distance. Scoffing. Lying. If I could summarize this passage, when Jesus is on trial, why is he on trial? Because they are trying desperately to remove him from their lives. They had tried from the the moment he spoke in Nazareth when they took him to the top of the hill to throw him off. They had tried from that day forward to get rid of Jesus, to remove him from their lives. So what is it? Is it any different today when you talk to people and they want nothing to do with Jesus? They don't want to hear his name. They don't want to hear that he is the Savior, that they're a sinner, that they need him. They want to completely remove Jesus from their lives. This is how people respond. They'd rather see him on trial and put to death than him being exalted as king and they fall down and worship him. It's easier for sinners to get rid of Jesus than to exalt him as king. It's actually impossible because we're dead in trespasses and sins. And for the chief priests, for Judas Iscariot, for all of the Roman soldiers here, they are trying to remove him from their lives. The people that you have talked to, that I have talked to, that we're trying to get them to bow the knee to Jesus, and they shut us down. They don't want to talk. They want to talk about anything else besides Jesus. They are trying desperately to remove him from their lives. But we know what happens in the future. Christ is exalted. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You can try as hard as you want to get rid of Jesus from your life, and eventually you'll find yourself at his throne. You'll be on your knees. 
We don't elect Jesus. No one elects Jesus as king. He is king. And this trial doesn't change that fact. He is doing his father's will. But those who hate Jesus are trying desperately to remove him from their lives. What else do we see from people around Jesus? They are lying to themselves. Who's lying to himself in this passage? Judas Iscariot. We see him lying to himself. What is he lying to himself about? Jesus isn't king. He's not my king. Because if he was your king, you wouldn't sell him for 30 pieces of silver. You would not betray a king. You would bow and worship a king. Let's skip down to chapter 27. In verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, now this man has followed Jesus for three years. None of the disciples knew it was Judas that night when the betrayer was revealed. Judas is the ultimate liar. He's deceived himself. He's deceived all the disciples. He has not deceived the king. The king knows. Judas is found out. Judas sees that Jesus is condemned in verse 3. He changes his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? We don't care. See to it yourself. That's your problem, is what they're saying. Verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver, because they wouldn't take it, he says, I don't want this money, throws it down into the temple, and he departed. And he went and hanged himself. Where should Judas have gone? He should have went to Jesus. He should have went to Jesus and said, I'm sorry for betraying you. Will you forgive me? And the one person who could have forgiven him would have forgiven him. How do I know that? Because what's the thief on the cross say? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this man lives an equally wicked, deceitful, vile life as Judas Iscariot does. And this man goes to the right place, the thief on the cross, and Judas goes to the wrong place. Instead of going to the king and submitting himself to Jesus and asking for forgiveness, in despair, still believing lies about Jesus, not submitting to Jesus, he goes and takes his life. Everyone who takes their lives, and if you have talked to someone who is despairing of life, tell them to come to Jesus. All of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the despair that they're feeling, Jesus can forgive them. Jesus can help them. Jesus will be with them. All that Jesus is to you, he will be to them. If he's their king, then he will take all of their pain and give them rest. But if you keep telling yourself lies, you're going to end up, as Judas does, despairing of life and taking his own life. Verse 6, the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said it's not lawful for them to put them into the treasury. Now these guys gave an unlawful trial that night, and they're so concerned about being lawful. This is just so, they're, they're, they're liars, they're thieves, they're crooks. So they take counsel together and they buy for themselves the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
The blood of whom? It's the blood of Jesus. That field was called the blood, the field of blood, Jesus' blood. That field was the payment for the betrayal. Verse 9, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. We'll go back to uh, Peter in a minute. Jesus stood, verse 11, before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you, now this is Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? The Pilate's name isn't even given in this section, it's the next, but are you the king of the Jews? Now remember, Matthew tells us Jesus is the perfect king. And the only people that are calling Jesus the king of the Jews are those who are mocking him. The Roman soldiers are. The men who said, uh, prophesy if you are the Christ. Christ is another way of saying the anointed one or a king. Okay, back in verse 68 of chapter 26. So the people that are calling Jesus king are those who are mocking him. And so it is with the governor. They're mocking Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer because they weren't, it wasn't an official court of law. And they're lying about him, so he doesn't need to answer. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53 not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd only one prisoner whom they wanted. And they uh, had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that he was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him word have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Why? Because he's not their king. The governor also said, again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's another name for uh, Messiah or king, anointed one. Then they also said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. You know what they're saying? We are responsible. We'll take full responsibility for killing this man. They don't know what they're doing. Why don't they know what they're doing? Because he's the king. You don't kill the king. Then they released for him Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So, he is not my king. So those who, Jesus is not their king, they're at best, they're confused or indecisive like Pilate is, and doesn't want to start a riot, another gospel says he wanted to please the people and wanting to please the people rather than God they this is how people live pleasing others pleasing themselves not caring about pleasing God this is how people who Jesus is not their king live 
It's how they live then. It's how they live now. But if he is your king, how does Peter respond back in 26? What does Peter do? He pulls out a sword. Now, here is 12 men, 11, because Judas isn't there. He's with the bad guys, right? So here's 12 men, 11 men, um, and verses 600. Fishermen, not soldiers, not the elite Marines or Green Berets that the disciples were not, okay? They were fishermen. And what does Peter do? He whips out a sword. Why does he pull out a sword and cut the high priest servant's ear off? Because he loves Jesus. If Jesus is your king, you will love him. You see the hatred that all the people around Jesus at his arrest and trials had for Jesus? Mocking him, ridiculing him, lying about him. All the things that people do today about Jesus. And there are few people, Christians, followers of Jesus, who say, that's my king. And when he is attacked, we hate to hear someone say, as I heard this week, just in passing, someone surprised and says, Jesus Christ, do not say his name in vain. And we hate to hear that. Why? Because we love our Savior. Do you love him when most attack him? It's getting worse in our culture. It's going to be very, very <coughs> dominant in, in, um, in our culture as the rest of the world. That those who are not following Jesus are going to take his name in vain and attack him. Do you love him enough to defend him? Secondly, what does Peter do whenever he is sitting outside verse 69 of chapter 26? Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you were also with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it. So denying Jesus doesn't mean that, that uh, Peter's not a follower. He doesn't, he is, look at how he responds whenever, after the three times of, of denial and getting so adamant, invoking a curse on himself in verse 74 and says, I don't know the man. Then immediately the rooster crows. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Look at how Peter responds. And he went out and wept bitterly. When we deny that we know Christ, do we weep bitterly? It's a sign that he's your king. It's not perfect. Peter's not perfect. We're not perfect. But whenever we miss opportunities to speak positively of Christ and we miss those opportunities, we should weep. And we do. Why? Because we love him. And we want to defend him. We want to speak of him. We want others to follow him too. He's our king. This is the most blatant injustice ever. There's been injustice. Whatever is unjust now is all over the news. And people take sides on... Uh, on uh, major court cases and things, but this is the most blatant injustice. It's clearly said here that the best witnesses they could find couldn't even agree, and they're called false witnesses, and Pilate gets a warning through his wife, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. Time after time, Jesus is innocent. Doesn't even open his mouth to all these false accusations. And it should grieve us. This grieves us. 
If we were here, like Peter, like the other disciples, we would be grieved. Does this grieve you? Every time we read this story, we should be grieved. That's how God wants us to respond. Why? Because that's my king. My king did not get a fair trial. Fallen world, fallen leaders, hating God leaders are in charge. And then, are you willing to be treated unjustly for following your king? If this is how our king is treated, we should be expecting to be treated the same way. And Christians have been treated unjustly from this day forward. Look at Stephen, Acts 7. Look at all the martyrs. Yep. Treated unjustly. Why? Because we're following our king. And it's okay because we don't demand justice now on this planet in this time. We'll get justice in the future. Read Revelation. This is our king. All right, he lays down his life. His life is not taken from him. He is not killed. He is not murdered. And you see things like this, books written, the murder of Jesus. That's kind of okay, but it's not actually accurate because Jesus isn't murdered. Because what does he say about his life? I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. And the king is in complete control throughout this whole process. He's not out of control. He's not angry. He's not railing on them. He's in complete control. And he's in complete control on the cross. As he becomes sin for us, he pays for all of our sin. And we know in John, he cries out, it is finished. Well, how should we respond to, and how do people around the cross respond to Jesus on the cross? Verse 27 of, of chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion, that is 600 men, before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, who's calling him king? Only those in mocking, mocking him. Verse 30. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, which was a, a way to dull the pain. It was a painkiller, and when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. He didn't need painkillers. He wouldn't take painkillers. Verse 35, and when they had um, crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, mocking him. Verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, the other on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Again, mocking. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Luke tells us that one stopped eventually. What do we see here? 
we see that those who say Jesus is not my king, what are they like? They're mocking Jesus. And they're mocking, eventually they'll mock his followers. Who in their right mind would want a king that is hanging on a cross? Who in their right mind would follow Jesus of Nazareth? If he's trusting in God, let God deliver him now. What is actually happening? Jesus is delivering them, and they don't see it. Why? Because he's not their king. They refuse to see it. You also see the phrase, if you are the son of God. Does that sound satanically familiar? It does, because this is how Jesus was talked to by Satan back in the temptation of Matthew and Luke. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. If you are the son of God, bow down to me. If you are the son of God. This is how Satan and his followers talk about Jesus, talk to Jesus. If you are the son of God. We don't say if he's, a, if he's our king. What do we say? Since. Since you're the son of God. Not if. If you're God, save me. If you can hear me. This is how people who Jesus is not their king talk to Jesus. This isn't how we talk to him. When you talk about Jesus, do you doubt he is the son of God by using language like if? And then let's keep reading. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., middle of the day. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. No, he's not. We have an interpretation right here. Verse 48. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. They just hate Jesus so much. They're not even willing to help him. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again. A loud voice. He says two other things after this. It is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he yields up his spirit. He, the king, yields up his spirit. Who's in charge here? At the end of verse 50, it's Jesus. He doesn't breathe his last because he can't push himself up. This is how people suffocated on the cross. He decides when it's time that he yields up his spirit, he's in complete control. If he's not your king, though, you're going to be really confused about why is it getting dark? Why is he crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he saying these things? Verse 51, the confusion is going to get even more um, confusing. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. If you were near the temple and you're to hear this loud ripping sound from the top to the bottom, the temple curtain was at least 15 feet, the, the center of our Auditorium here is 15 feet high. From the top to the bottom. It wasn't from the bottom to the top, which is how we could say man did that. No, God tore the temple um, curtain. From the top to the bottom. And the earth shook. God is shaking the earth. And the rocks were split. God is splitting the rocks. 
and the tombs were opened. What? And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. There are seven specific resurrections mentioned in our Bible. And I'm going to assume that more people, as in the many, were raised at his crucifixion than the rest of Scripture combined. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they stayed in their tombs for three days. Why? Because Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. He, is the, he gets all the glory for resurrection. And these people, saints, people who were believers, come out of the tombs after Jesus is raised. And they go in. And you can imagine seeing your relative who died weeks, months, years ago. And they're standing at your door. It would be worse than when Peter gets let out of prison later, right? <laughs> we have no account of what happens other than this happened. Something happened to make the earthquake, the rock split, the, the uh, curtain to tear, and all these people to come back to life. Something significant happened. What significantly happened? The king laid down his life. God accepted the full payment of Christ on the cross. And they appeared to many. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, because they wanted to make sure he didn't try to get off the cross or his followers take him off the cross, they kept watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God, or the Son who is God. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, so if he's not your king, you're going to be confused about the darkness. Jesus crying out, the curtain tearing, the earth quaking. And I don't know if anyone who was unsaved saw these people that were once dead come back to life. If you did, the reason those people are back to life, they would say, the moment Jesus died, um, he get, yielded up his life, that's when I awoke. They gave all the credit to God. Please believe that Jesus is the king. This does not happen when anyone else on the planet who has ever died, none of these things happen. But all these things do happen. And even those who are hardened centurion soldiers, those around him, not just the centurion, it says those around him and those who are with him, they all agreed, truly this is the Son of God. All of the earth is responding to the death of their creator. If he is your king, what do we see? What do we see about people? We are going to go back to love. We're going to love our Savior so much for taking our place. We all deserve to be on the cross. Why? Because we're liars. We steal things. We rebel against our parents. We take God's name in vain. We have other gods before God. We break the Ten Commandments. We break God's law. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We deserve to be under God's wrath, bearing the iniquity of our sin. And yet we don't get that. 
Why don't we get that? Because our king took our place. Do you love him? I can't make you love him. But I'll tell you this. When you do love him, you look at the cross so much different than the world looks at it. If he is your king, you're going to love him so much more. You can't read this passage or Mark's account or Luke's account or John's account, and there are so much text of Scripture for it, without coming away saying, ah, that was no big deal. This is a huge deal. This causes our love to grow every single time that we read it, every single time we remember Christ's death in communion, every four weeks. Your love should grow. If he's your king, it does. If he's not your king, we'll get to that. If he's your king, your love will grow. Why do I keep saying love? Because loving the Lord your God is the first and great commandment, and you can only do this, and you should be doing this, when you're set free from your sin. When you and I are set free from our sin, now we're free to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is simple. It's not rocket science. It's simple. Do you love God, or do you not? And if we don't love him, he's not your king. If if he's your king, then you love him. Do you love him enough to identify with him, even though he was given the death sentence? Who is identifying with Jesus here? It's these women. They followed him. They're looking on at a distance, like Peter, who followed and, and was not part of the crowd that's, that's mocking him. Peter follows. Peter tries to defend because he loves him. Peter weeps when he doesn't because he loves him. And so it is here with the ladies. They are constantly, what's it say here in verse 55? They were constantly following Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Why are they ministering to him? Because they love him. Now there's other people at the cross, who are going to show love for Christ. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who is also a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why is he asking for the body of Jesus? Because he loves him. He's identifying with this criminal, so-called criminal. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone at the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb so that they knew where to go. Verse 62, the next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this, that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away. And tell the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Jesus is either a huge liar and an imposter and a fraud, as these men say, or he's the king. Only two options. He's your king or he's not your king. If he's not your king, you're going to lie about him. You're going to believe lies about him. Verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can as secure as you can. That's hilarious. Verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard, putting Pilate's seal probably on it, that you can't break the seal, kind of like Daniel was sealed into the lion's den. Do you see Jesus as the son who is God? 
centurion, possibly a believer now. Um, and the other Gospels uh, talk about him. The king is not dead. He's alive. We'll read all of 28, a few comments, and we'll remember the Lord's table. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Well, as secure as you can, wasn't very secure. Verse 3. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. I, I'd like to see the look on the chief priest's face when they heard that Jesus is alive. The earthquaking, the angels... The whole story, because they told him everything. We don't have that, okay? We don't need to know. Verse 12. When they had assembled the elders, so these guys are probably scared to death. They're, the guards are scared, the chief priests are scared, and in fear they're calling other people, and they, everybody hears the story, they're afraid. And take counsel and gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Wow, money is flowing here in the wicked camp. From Judas to the chief priests, now from the chief priests and elders to the soldiers. All this is bribery. Verse 13, and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night, stole him away while he was asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him um, and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Lies. Lies about Jesus are spread. Who's spreading the lies? Those who Jesus is not their king. It hasn't changed from the trial to, to, to this day, three days later. So what's happening to all the people that believe the lies? Their lives are being destroyed. They're doing the work of Satan. What does Satan do? He tells us lies about Jesus. He is not the king. He is not, he's just a man. He is just a good teacher. He's just an example. No, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is, Satan will also say, he is not coming again. Or he was married to Mary Magdalene. Or his tomb is somewhere that we haven't discovered yet. And his body's still somewhere. And lies, 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 lies. And many people believe these lies to this day. And if you believe these lies, you'll be destroyed. Eternally destroyed. This is a big deal. If the king is alive and he is not my resurrected king, what is your life going to be characterized by? Forced submission. You have, these people have to submit to Jesus as king because... He comes, the earthquake happens, and these guards who are hardened soldiers, they are falling like dead men. They're forced to submit. 
to the king. What do they do? They gather with other people who, not my resurrected king, come up with a story, deceive many, and everyone who believes these lies about Jesus, destroyed. Eternally destroyed. This is a big deal. Everyone today who doesn't believe Jesus is my resurrected king, he's not paid for my sin, and he's not alive. I don't care. I'll live my own life. I'm just trying to get rid of Jesus, get rid of the thought of Jesus. I want to talk about religion. You're going to be forced to submit. You're going to believe lies, and eventually you're going to be destroyed. That's what we see here with the resurrection. What do we see for those who he is my resurrected king? Verse 16 and following. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, exactly what Jesus told them to do. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, and doubting's part of human nature. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's kingly language. Christ has all authority. Why? Because he is the resurrected king. Verse 19 Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If your life is following the resurrected King, then you will have this, these character qualities, this characterized, uh, this will characterize your life. You'll rejoice that Jesus is alive. You'll love the truth and you will hate lies. And you'll be willing to follow Jesus, whatever he says. That's what you see here in 28. Those who followed Jesus, they obeyed him. They rejoiced that he's alive. They spread the word. You can see it in Acts. They're spreading the word that Jesus is alive and come follow him with us. They're not into lying. They're into telling the truth. While some doubt for a time, Thomas, uh, John 20 is going to tell us, when he sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. Doubts are gone. He's following the truth. He's following Christ. So if you're watching or you're here today and Jesus is not your king, but you want him to be your king, two things. Turn from your sin and pride. You've got to stop believing lies. Stop perpetrating lies. Stop blaming everyone else for your sin. Take responsibility that you have sinned against God. Look at the cross. That's where your sin was paid for. All of your pride, all of your sin paid in full on the cross. 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sins, that's agree with God that we have sinned. He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins. He takes all of our sin away and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness. And when we are forgiven and all of our sins are cleansed, we are free to live with God forever. If we will confess our sins, don't make excuses for your sins. No one sneaks into, deceives this way into the kingdom of heaven. We would confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. So turn and then trust. Turn and trust or repent and believe. Trust completely in Jesus' death and resurrection. See, if when you and I trusted 
Jesus' death and resurrection, he went from not being our king to being our king. We went from intentionally not wanting to be like the world, wanting to separate from the world, wanting to not be like those, those people that gathered around and mocked him and ridiculed him and spit on him and beat him and put him on a cross and doubted him and confused about him and everything else, the, all the things that we saw in this story. We said, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to keep telling lies about Jesus and getting people to follow me and trying to please people. I don't care what people think. I want to just please God. Here is the truth. I want to respond to the truth. And Christ says, trust completely in my death and trust in my resurrection. Romans 10.9 says this, if you will confess, that's agree with God again, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You know what Jesus is Lord? Jesus is King. He's my King. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Glorious truth. We love, we love our Savior. He is our King. We're going to remember him at this time. You have a communion cup. We're going to thank the Lord for his broken body. And for his shed blood, if you want to open both, pull out your wafer and open the, open the cup. If Christ is not your king or you're not sure, this is not for you. You can just watch. It's okay. If Christ is your king, you love him. You know that you love him. You're not perfect. Like Peter, you're not perfect like other disciples who doubted. No one was there at the tomb waiting for his resurrection. But you love him, and you want to follow him, and you want to believe him. You want to obey him. This is for you. This is to help us to love our Savior a little bit more, and a little bit more. So we remember him. We'll thank the Lord for both, and then we will partake of both. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your broken body on the cross. It never gets old. It's so sweet to see all that you went through for us. You laid down your life so that we can have eternal life. Thank you for your broken body on the cross. Thank you for your blood that was spilled from your head and your hands and your side and your feet and your back and the thorns and your face. Thank you so much for not calling the angels, for not coming down off the cross. Thank you for staying there. Help our love to grow. Help our hatred for sin to grow and our doubts. Help us to believe the truth. Help us to love you enough to spend time in your word every day, and to love talking to you. Help us now as a church to be unified here around your body. To love one another enough to help those around us that are suffering, that are hurting, that need uh, encouragement in many different ways. And help us as we uh, remember you, that we will uh, love you and love those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just eat and drink in remembrance of him.